0: come on up, find somewhere to sit. All right, good to see you. Why don't you find a spot to sit? There's room over here yet too, guys. All right. Okay. So for our messages during church now, we're back in the book of Genesis, right? The book of beginnings. And last week we heard about Eve being deceived by the serpent, right? And Adam sitting against God by eating from the tree that God told him not to eat from, right? But today we're going to see that there is consequence to sin. So let's first think about that word consequence, all right? The word consequence means it's a result of an action. So it's something that comes about because of an action, all right? So if I break the law... Then I will get consequences, right? I might have to pay a fine. I might have to pay money because I broke the law. That might be the consequence, the result of my action. I might be put in jail, right? Something like that. Those things are consequences of my action, of breaking the law. They're the results of my action. So in this case, with Adam, his action was sin, right? He was disobeying God, and that's sin. And there will be lots of consequences for him and for others as a result of his action, as a result of his sin. So some of the consequences because of Adam's sin, uh, we'll read about this morning. Some of them include when women have babies, it will be very, very painful. It'll hurt a lot when women have babies. So that's one of the consequences. Somebody want to hold the baby? All right. Another consequence we'll see is that there are lots of thorns and thistles that grow on plants and come from the ground. So when you go pick blackberries, you get scratched up a lot because of all the thorns on that. Does anybody want to hold that? Probably not. (laughs) I'm holding it down here where there aren't any thorns, but there's lots of thorns. So I'll set it back here. I'll set it over here. Okay? But thorns and thistles are one of the consequences we'll see. Another one is that work, when we work, like farmers who work out in the field and things, the work becomes really hard. Or if you try to, if you try to grow a garden, there's going to be a lot of hard work. It's not going to come easy anymore. But our work becomes really hard and laborsome. So all that happens. Those things we'll see are consequences of sin. And of course, Do you remember what God said would happen if Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? When you eat it, you will surely die. die. Yeah, death is a result. That's a consequence of Adam's sin, right? We'll die physically, our physical bodies, but also spiritual death. We'll be separated from God the Father. But here's the thing. As God is telling Adam and Eve about these many consequences to their sin, He's also giving them glimpses. He's giving them little views of great blessing as well. And so God will not just leave them in their sin, but he will show them mercy. So Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced consequences. Who else experiences consequences to sin? Don't all of us do, don't we? We experience all these things. And sometimes we can get pretty grumpy about it, can't we? We're picking blackberries to eat, and we think, oh, all these thorns are scratching me, right? We can whine and complain about those things. But we really don't have anyone to blame because Adam's sin brought consequences, but we also have all sinned. And so they're a result of our sin as well. But as bad as it is for us to experience all these consequences of our sin, there's someone who experienced it much worse than we have. Do you know who experienced that consequence of sin much worse than we did? Yeah, God, Jesus did, didn't he? Jesus Christ did. And even as God was telling Adam and Eve about the consequences to their sin, he also was telling them of a Savior who would come and rescue both them and us. And we know the Savior is who? Jesus is the Savior, right? He's our Savior. And so God told them about that. And so in order to save us from our sin, Jesus had to experience all of the consequence of sin himself. And he experienced all the consequence of our sin at the cross, right? When he suffered and died on the cross, he experienced all the pain. He experienced even separation from God the Father. God the Father forsake him. He turned away from him. And Jesus died in our place. So even though Jesus had never, ever sinned himself, he bore the greatest consequence for all of our sin. And he died. He did that for each of us so that we wouldn't have to experience all of sin's consequence forever and ever. But we can be forgiven for our sin, have life through faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. So as Pastor Jeremy preaches this morning, I want you to listen for two things I want you to listen, number one, for the consequences of sin and listen, two, for those little views, those little peaks of God's mercy and blessing that he brings, okay? So thanks, everyone, for coming up. You can go back, have a seat, and keep listening as Pastor Jeremy preaches. Okay, as
1: Pastor Jeff said, we are in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're in chapter 3, verses 14 to 24, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Verses 14 to 24. Uh, We all, you do and I do, have uh, creative ways to remember things. The old one is string on a finger. Some of you tape uh, notes to doorknobs so that you don't forget something. The other day I was talking on my phone while looking for my phone. Um, wake-up calls, and so on. One of the things that God does when he curses sin in these verses is to do it in such a way that we would have perpetual ongoing reminders of the effects of the fall and our need for Christ. Uh, so he is consistently in our world giving us daily objective views, if you will, of our need for humility to come before God humbly uh, and also that it could be much worse and so we can turn to Christ. That's what this is for. It's for our humility and to see our need for God's grace. Let's read these verses. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you were for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living and the lord god made for adam and eat and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them then the lord god said behold Father, give us faith to believe your word here and to believe it in every word of it. God, give us faith to receive it as uh, needful in knowing you and knowing your son and knowing how to live in this world in a way pleasing to you. And so, God, we cannot do this apart from your grace, and so send your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first 13 verses of chapter 3 of Genesis show uh, our ruin and fall into sin. And now in the last half of this chapter, we see God's dealing with our sin of curse and to a promise of redemption. You'll note in Scripture that the one is never present without the other. God hates and so cannot abide sin. You'll see that throughout Scripture. His threatenings and judgment for sin are prevalent. And then along with that, you'll also see a note of redemption, of grace, of a way to become acceptable to uh, to God again. So the same is true here. Throughout the just judgments of God and cursing our sin, we see right woven all throughout it promises of eternal salvation through our uh, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one is never present without the other in Scripture. Uh, And so we need to learn a lesson right away there. We will become more aware of the love of God as we embrace the depths of our depravity. Uh, Our world deals very lightly with God's love, uh, sentimentally. um, It doesn't have the effect it should have on us, and that's simply because we've lost the doctrine of sin. We don't fear God, and so we don't know his love as we ought. And Genesis 3 is a help to that. God begins by cursing the devil, then the woman, then the man, and he ends by driving the man out of the garden. The curses that we see here are not as awful as we deserve. And so even in the consequences for our sin from God, we see his kindness. We see his patience. But the curses are such that we cannot miss them. They are like the noses on our faces. And God has set up our world where we have to keep looking in the mirror moment by moment and seeing the awful effects of our rebellion against God. But even more, we see God's limitless and undeserved promises right alongside, especially in verse 15, that the seed of Eve, of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And so, What I want to do in this sermon is is hopefully have two effects on your life, to humble us, that we might come before God more humbly because of the awful curse of our sin, and then secondly, that it might cause you to see God's patience and mercy in Christ. And so I hope that as you leave here, you might be hating your sin more, that you might be humbled by the depravity that is in you, and so then see all the more for the strong and potent grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I pray for you. Let's, let's hope that God does that for us. All right, so let's start in verse 14. The devil is damned. There is no forgiveness for him. We'll see forgiveness offered for the man and the woman, but not for the devil. The Lord tells of this severity Because he is at root the one who tempted us to sin. Jesus, our Lord, said that it would be better for those who cause others to sin to have a heavy millstone slung, hung around your neck and cast to the bottom of the sea than to face him. And that is the devil's curse. The devil has, from this time, a millstone tied tightly by our Lord around his neck, and he is on his way down. And so in this curse of Satan, you and I can gain some humility because we can see how much God hates sin. This is, in effect, what we all deserve. God hates sin this much. And this is a warning. Sin is vile before him. The devil is vile before our God. He deserves an unforgivable curse, and apart from Christ, so do each of us. But in this curse of Satan, we not only can receive humility, we see the source of all enmity in our world. God not only humiliates the serpent to a life of crawling in the dust, he tells the serpent that there will be open warfare between he and the offspring of the woman. So throughout Scripture, we'll see this. There is warfare. After this... In chapter 4, as we'll see next week, there uh, is warfare between Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel. Why is that there? Well, Cain is of the line of Satan, in effect. Abel is of the line of Eve, the godly line that God is going to bless, and there's warfare between them. That ends in the murder of the righteous by the unrighteous. And so this is our lives, isn't it? We see in... Muslim-controlled countries that Christians are being slaughtered by unbelieving Muslims who hate God. That's this. Every time you see that in the news, that's what we see. That's why we see it, because God has put enmity between them. And notice that. Isn't that strange how it says that? Who, who is the one who does this in verse 15? Who's speaking? God is. I will put enmity. God is sovereign over everything in this world. And because we'll see of his mercy, this should give you great comfort. Jesus himself said, it should not be strange to you when you are persecuted, when those who hate me and persecuted me persecute you. God put this in this world as a reminder to us. And so we see uh, not only this enmity, but it will conclude with Satan being destroyed and we uh, being wounded. And so there is here in verse 15 the first promise of victory. God says that the devil and all those who belong to him will wound God's people, but that God's people, the line of promise, the seed of the woman, will crush his head So sometimes when people become Christians, they think it's going to make everything better. Life is going to get better. But here we see that we will be wounded. Satan will harass us. Those who are of his side will vex and harm us. But we will pulverize the bone of his skull into pulp. Now, this... Uh, promise in verse fifteen is often directly just a pride to Christ, which is true. Jesus, as we see in Colossians chapter two verse fifteen, came and made a public display, triumphing triumphing over his enemy, disarming them. Jesus, we read in Mark chapter four, early in his ministry, said that he can free captives from Satan because he has come and bound the strong man. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, I read in my devotion this morning, that through death he destroyed the devil, who has the power of death and delivers those who are in bondage to it. So here in verse 15, right as God is cursing the devil eternally, right as we see this terrible news of warfare is this promise of victory. But strangely, uh, or maybe to your ears strangely, the Bible doesn't only or even mainly apply this to Jesus, although that's true, it mainly applies the crushing of the head of the serpent to God's people, the church. And so uh, Paul in Romans 16 uh, writes that we, God's people, will soon crush Satan under our feet. Listen to how Paul says this. uh, This is Romans 16, 20. Listen to this, okay? Please listen carefully. The God of peace, okay? That's how Paul starts the verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of, am I the only one who finds that? Grace and peace and gray matter of the brain under your feet in one verse. What does God's peace enable the church to do? Why does Paul pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us? So we can do some boot stomping on Satan's skull. We are the church militant. We are the church at war. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Why? Because God, the God of peace is with us. Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. This is us, church. This is Pine Grove Community Church and all who truly call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are victors over the serpent. Satan will be crushed at the end of time. That's because by God's grace, we do the crushing. He is like uh, so many pop cans crushed in the crusher, lying flat under our feet. And so God's peace and God's grace don't make us pathetically limp-wristed doormats. They make us soldiers. Who in the battle get wounded? Our heels are bruised. We have broken bones and souls that despair, but in the end, our enemy is undone. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 8, this victory of Christ's church is so thorough that the uh, prophet Isaiah sees after the return of our Savior that young children will play at the hole of the cobra. <laughs> There is a day coming when this enmity will be no more because God's church has faith to proclaim the gospel that defeats the enemy. So in the curse of the devil, we see God's hatred of sin. We see the hostility that is in our world that causes us to come humbly before God, and we also see this promise of, of victory in Christ for the church. Next, we see the curse of the woman, and one of the realities we see here is that God curses the woman different than the men. And so if you are not aware, our world is currently lying to us, that men and women are different. And so God has different ways of punishing our sin, even according to our sex. The woman, as we remember in Genesis chapter 2, is given to the man. They were both called to be lords of this earth, Adam as head over the woman, she to be his helpmate, and one of those things that they were to come together in this holy union of marriage and have children. The woman was given the blessing of being a life bearer, a nurturer of life. And, uh, and so women, if you're not aware as a husband, are often more relationally oriented than you are. And the two most significant relationships for a woman... If she's married and has children, it will be for her husband and her children. Things that she will give her life or spend herself for will be for her husband and for her children. Nothing matters to a mom more than her kids and their welfare. And nothing matters more to a wife than her husband and his success. And those two most precious, most emotionally tied relationships are here cursed by God. the bent of a woman, how God made a woman, is now terribly afflicted. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain. Who does a woman care more for than her child or her husband? Who does she have more feeling for than those in her own home? And now because of sin, she will experience great pain in the bearing and raising of her children. Listen, the pain here in childbearing isn't just the pain of the birth. It's the pain of raising a child, which every mother knows oh too well. She'll be subject to this. And notice again who is speaking in verse 16. I will surely. This is God speaking. Your pain and childbearing and childrearing, your pain and difficulty with your husband. I don't know any other way to say this, according to this language, is from God. I will. So why? Why? Why this here? Why this life as a woman? Why this agony? Because of sin. As an ongoing perpetual reminder of The awfulness of sin before a holy God. To break our hearts before God. To cause us to plead with closed fists before our God. You'll notice that it says, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. God made a woman to live in submission to her husband, which would be good, it would be glad, it would be happy, it would be teammates working together. The husband is the leader, a woman in glad support of him. But now God has cursed that. Instead of a woman gladly following her husband's leadership, she will try to dominate him, to control him, as one translation says. Your desire will be to control your husband, Doesn't the Bible make sense of your marriage? Don't we love God's word for it? Why do you as a woman nitpick your husband when he's doing dishes? You should wash it this way. Isn't that because you have this sinful bent to want to control him? And... God says your husband won't take too kindly to this. He will sinfully either try to squash your control or he'll just give up. He'll just take it. He'll become either very passive and weak or he'll fight you. So conflict in marriage. Go to a Christian bookstore. Half the books there are about conflict in marriage and none of them will state why. Because it's our sex. Because men and women are different and sin has corrupted it. Again, this is so that you and I, husbands and wives, men and women, can learn humility before God to humble us We can look to God and so let you, as godly women, acknowledge this fact. God has placed the difficulties in your life before your children, sometimes insatiable desire to control your husband so that you might come before God, our Father, and yield to him to know that your husband is not your Savior, only Christ is. So that you can see God's mercy. You still have joys in parenting, don't you? There is still incredible joy in the birthing of a child. Oh, it's so painful. There is still lots in your parenting of your children to give God praise for. There is great good in your marriage. This is God's mercy is not nearly as it could be. It's not nearly as it could be. In fact, the last promise of the old covenant that will be fulfilled in the new covenant is that God himself will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. Throughout the New Testament, we see godly examples of godly women growing in the Lord and in submission to their husband to honor and respect him, to be godly, in a gentle and quiet spirit, brothers and sisters, because of Christ, this does not have to be the reality. There's hope here. There can be joy here. That's enough on that. Let's move on to the man. God's word to Adam is somewhat... See, kids are right on cue here. The curse right before our eyes... God's word to Adam here is somewhat longer and includes, by the way, we like to bear with kids. It's good. Don't be grumpy about kids uh, doing that. They're acting like kids. It's good. So God's description to Adam is longer than to the serpent or to the woman and includes, unlike to the serpent or the woman, an explanation of why he's cursing the man. Adam is reminded that because he placed the word of his wife before the word of God, because he scorned his authority as head of his wife and listened to her trampling on God's command, because he preferred Eve, his wife, to his creator, for this reason, God is cur- cursing the work of Adam. You'll note that the two most central realities that God has given us as men and women to live out his command to fill and subdue the earth is that which he's cursing. God has made you and I to be lords of this earth, to rule it as his kingly and queenly underlings with great glory, crowned us with glory and honor above all creation, And the way that we live out, subduing this earth, filling with his glory is by bearing children and by working. And it's these two things that God is here cursing. So brothers, Adam failed, as we see in verse 15, because he listened to the voice of his wife before God. And brothers, you and I know that. There is nothing often that a husband fears more than his wife's voice. I am not overstating here. When your wife is on you, you will often do everything to make it stop. You're laughing. You know this is true. This is true, this is true, this is true. In fact... We tremble, honestly. You have more physical reaction to your wife's words than you do to God's words as a man. Isn't that true? If you were a son in your father's household, you saw it lived out before you. Your dad had more respect for what mom said than what God said often. And not just idolatry, brothers. Don't we here meet daily reminders of our sinful nature? Why are we so fearful of our wives and not of God? Why will we go to great lengths to avoid a quarrel with our wives, but not take such great care to learn and obey God's words? Well, the answer is we're fallen. Now, this is no excuse but again to show us our need before God. We must grow in this. We must make progress in this. Our marriages serve us by God's grace to show us our need for strength and courage which comes alone from the Lord. And so God not only curses um, or, or in, in that, because the, the man submitted himself to his wife's word rather than to God's word, he's cursed the man's work. You as a man find most of your identity in your work. It's true. It's, it's actually not evil in of itself. You're made to work. God told Adam that he placed them in the garden to work and to keep it, to make it productive and to protect it. Part of our identity as men is this. It's good. You should find joy in your work, in being productive, in finding new ways to do things better, in making lives better, and producing for your family, and protecting your family. This is good. But now this has been subjected to frustration. It's cursed. Work that is good, it's still good, is now marked by toil and frustration and burden and loss and waste, and we now sweat a lot. And end up with very little at the end of the day. Again, God has cursed the main thing that you were made for, like the woman, so that you might turn to Him. It's not as bad as it could be. You'll see that God God says here that um, He will still eat of the ground all the days of His life. You see that all throughout, these are these little notes of hope. I'm still going to provide for you, I'm your God. It's going to be much more difficult because of sin. I need you to have often reminders of your sin, but I am still going to be your provider. You have to hear these sweet notes within these sour off notes. This is what God is like. Our world is a wonder, isn't it? Who can't this time of year love it? The sunsets, the breezes like yesterday, the 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 blue waters around us, the creepers chanting in the evenings, the taste of a strawberry. This world is amazing. And it's fallen. It doesn't work like it should. What will it be like when Christ returns? If it's this good now, if you can hardly stand some of the joys of this fallen creation now, what will it be like then? If the work now is frustrating but still so good, how much greater will our work be in eternity when it's not so frustrated? Hmm. Now, one thing men must not do about the difficulty of your work is whine about it. This is one thing that we're given to in our day. We complain. Listen, when you go to work, you should expect your boss to sin and to not manage you as well as you would like. You should expect your co-workers not to carry their weight. You live in a fallen world. What do you expect? You should expect your work that is good, hopefully as a Christian, not to get the return that you should, because we live in a fallen world. And you're fallen. The one thing we must not do is whine and complain and gripe. We must turn to God. But we see that not only is our work cursed... We now have death at the end of verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread to return to the ground, to return to the ground, to return to the ground, to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God created us in his image when you see a human being, you are seeing one who bears the very image of God. And that causes us, because of the beauty and glory of the human, of the man, to forget that we're dust. Adam was made from dust. And because of sin, we will return to it. You're experiencing that, some of you, much more acutely than others. Right? It's tough. I've said in the past weeks, there is no more difficult work you will do in your life than dying. Hey, you, must, you must come to grips with this. You have a lot of hard work in your life, but the hardest will be the last thing you do, which is die. And that's because of sin. You'll probably drive by a cemetery on your way home. God gives us perpetual reminders of our fall. Death in Genesis 3 occurs in two senses. One is physical cessation of life. You will breathe your last. Those that you love will breathe their last. And it will often be hard. There, we, we often call funerals celebrations of life. I get it, but I wish we wouldn't. They're sorrowful. They're separations. This is not the way it should have been. And we as Americans go to great lengths to deny the reality of death. It is not good. It isn't happy. So we have separation physically. But we also, because of sin, have separation from God. We have separation from God. Now, what comes next in verses 20 and 21 seems a bit out of place. The serpent is cursed, eternally condemned. The woman's childbearing and childraising relationship; her husband is cursed. The man's. Work is cursed, and then a sentence of death is pronounced, and the very next thing Adam does is names his wife and calls her the mother of all living. (laughs) You wonder if he has a mental defect or he's been drinking too much of the grape juice that suddenly fermented. Why would he say that right after what God had said? I think what's going on here is he believes the promise in verse 15. I think though he's just been condemned in his work and condemned to death, he realizes that there is victory for God's children over the serpent. So by faith, in the promise, he looks at his wife and says, your name is Eve. You're the mother of the living, of all living, This is not the end. Because of God's grace, this is beginning of redemption. And so I think his statement there in verse 20 is faith. He's confessing faith in the promise. It's not as bad as it could be. God is merciful. God is patient. God is promising. I don't know the fullness of the promise yet. I just know that this serpent who led us into this is going to die, and there's promise here, and I trust God. And look how God responds. He clothes them. He clothes them. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness on their own terms. They tried to cover their shame on their own terms, and it was paltry. It was really pathetic. And God now, having promised them, them receiving by faith sacrifices animals, skins them, knits them together, and covers them in it. The sacrifice of an innocent for the guilty. The clothing of our shame and sin. And those who have sin and shame. Here's the gospel. Of course, this points to Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. But even in this covering, we see how f- far we have fallen. We are image bearers of God that now has to be clothed. We have to hide God graciously covers us, but even the covering is so sad. That we have to do this is loss, and yet God has done it in grace. This is our life. Perpetual reminders of the fall, and along with it, reminders of his patience and kindness in Christ. That you have to wear clothes this morning. It's because you're fallen that you have to wear clothes this morning as a reminder that you are clothed in Christ by faith. You get both of those messages continually. The Christian life is a paradox. You are an undeserving, wretched rebel, and yet he has welcomed you as a son and daughter. Both are true. Both are true. Now, you can apply this in a couple ways. God takes care of his people. Notice that. God does it. God sacrifices the animal. God skins the animal. God makes the clothing. God covers them in it. He is a generous God. Please don't forget this. Second, we do see modesty here. He doesn't clothe them in bling. (laughs) It is really gross how... A lot of men are gussying themselves up today. You look at commercials with men in them. Of course, throughout Scripture, God applies the need for modesty to godly women. We should not dress to draw attention, our beauty should be in our inner person. We should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This should have external things for how we dress. But God clothes us. All right, two more verses to go. Three more verses to go. So God knows that man has now taken on himself this knowledge of evil. And lest he reach out the tree of life and eat and live forever, God drives the man and Eve out of the garden and guards the way back in with a terrifying angel and a flaming sword. The tree of life was to serve the man and woman as a sign in the garden, that so long as they remained in submission to God's word, they would live and never die. It was a sign of life. It was a sign that as long as they lived rightly before God, they would always have life in God. And now, because of the jagged edge of sin, their spiritual union with God was severed, and so they're cut off from life. Now, the tree served as a sign. This is something of what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. Okay. When you undergo the waters of baptism, having believed in Jesus, you receive a sign of this new life. You are washed from all sin and guilt, and you are raised brand new life. It's a sign It's a signpost that you have life washing, cleansing in God. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. You sit down at the table with your creator who nourishes you on his son by faith. These two things are given us like the tree of life for God's people to remember. Live in fellowship with God. Love him. Go after him. Search for him. Seek for him. In him is life. So the tree of life wasn't life. God is life. It was a symbol of life. Baptism doesn't cleanse you. Baptism doesn't make you new. Christ does. It's a sign. Eating the Lord's Supper doesn't make you a believer. It points you to the one in whom you are nourished as a believer by faith. It's a sign of Christ. And we have life in him only. And then it reminds us that apart from him, there is no hope. There is no life. There is no forgiveness. And so if you're a person here that does not believe in Jesus, who has not owned your sin, then you have no life. You have no eternal life. You will perish apart from God under his judgment forever in his hell. So this is to humble us. And then... We read again in verse 24. I I think these verses are striking. He drove out the man. God says, I will put enmity between you. I will multiply your pain. I will curse this ground, and I am driving you out from my presence. Uh, Excommunication is what we see here you heard that term before? It's often used when somebody is removed from the church because of their ongoing sin and they won't repent of it. So they're excommunicated. They're cut off from the fellowship, from God's people. That's what's happening here. Adam and Eve are excommunicated. They're cut off because of sin. And so this is where the doctrine of church discipline begins right here in Genesis chapter 3, that because of our inclination to sin, even those who confess Christ will sometimes be tempted by sin and go into it and to such a degree that they no longer are walking with the Lord. They're loving their sin and its pleasure more than their Savior. And those of us in the church are to come alongside of them and patiently and gently rebuke them. And if they refuse, then we are to even go so far as removing them from membership in the church, in effect saying, you no longer have life in God because you love your sin more than your God. That's where we get this from. That's where we get this from. There are times when our sin becomes more precious than Christ, more precious than Christ. Now, why do we do this? Why did God do this? Why did God drive them out? so that he could bring them back in on his terms and not on theirs. Because there's no amount of their works or efforts that could get them uh, into it. It's only going to be on his terms. It's only going to be on his terms. And so this is what God has done. He sent a second Adam who didn't fail in temptation. He sent his son. And so now we have life again. And so you and I will never feel the worth, the greatness of God's love until we are willing to admit the depths of our own depravity. And that's what we've seen here. You cannot save yourself. There's no way back in on your terms. But where you and I are completely impotent, God has done it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, please help us to see the greatness of your saving, forgiving, adopting love in Christ, even as we admit the awfulness of our sin. And so, God, help us to see both now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge comes from Jesus' word to the woman caught in adultery, right? He graciously forgives her sin. He covers her shame. But then he does say, go and sin no more. That's what we need both, right? We're forgiven of all of our sin. The power of sin is broken. And so let's go and hate it and fight it and not do it. Oops. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strength in your hearts in every good work and word. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.